Hello. Choose Trust is our regular podcast looking at how to build high trust relationships in business and the value that brings to everyone involved. I'm Stuart Meister, and together with my co-presenter Kevin Vaughan-Smith, we're writing a book for Economist Books with the same name, Choose Trust. So, we thought we'd meet and interview leaders who put some of these principles into practice and hear their real-world experiences of doing so and the value that brought. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you do, please subscribe and, of course, please do share it. Featuring myself, Stuart Meister, the Joint Managing Director of Mutual Value. And myself, Kevin Vaughan-Smith, the Joint Managing Director of Mutual Value. Guess what? You've got the Joint Managing Directors of Mutual Value on this podcast. Um, and But more importantly, perhaps, we've been commissioned by Economist Books to write the book called Choose Trust, which is a handbook of how you focus on trust as a source of value in the way you lead, the way you sell, and the way you collaborate. And we've got a whole bunch of ideas around that. But as part of it, we wanted to speak to some of the leading thinkers and leaders in this space who really are good examples of this. And we're turning those interviews into this podcast series. So you're going to hear some interesting people um, talking about trust as a core strategy. Kevin, what are the sorts of things you think we'll cover and that you hope to hear from them? Well, you've already said, Stuart, this is a handbook uh, rather than just a theory about trust. And as such, what we want is that people can dip into that handbook and find really valuable new and better behaviours that they can adopt, which will create trust both in the way that they sell with clients, in the way that they work with their teams, in the way they, they collaborate and lead others. So given that it's a handbook of behaviours, we thought we wanted to go to some of the best to get examples of those behaviors. How have they dealt with difficult situations? How have they leveraged those relationships to build trust and to create value for their very successful organization? So that's what I think we're gonna be hearing. The second part of that I think is so interesting. So absolutely practical real world examples of what people did that you as a listener can take away and think I could, I could get an idea from that, I could use that. But very critically, the value that was created as a result, the value in terms of greater revenues, much deeper, broader, more valuable client relationships, higher levels of performance from their organization, better collaboration within the firm of the organization and with partners to the organization. Those are the areas we want to look at. Now, everyone wants to be trusted. Everyone wants to be trustworthy and everyone wants to trust others. But stuff gets in the way in work. Well, Kevin, in your experience, what things get in the way of, of that? Well, we've grown up, I think, in a culture of competition where it's about me winning my, my race, my goals, as opposed to one of collaboration where we recognise that if we work jointly, if we have a shared vision, if we bring our best to, to a, a topic, we can create far more together than any individual or group of individuals acting on their own. So we need to move from this transactional thinking to collaborative thinking. And if you're going to collaborate, you better have trust at the foundation of that. So that's where we're going to go. Well, let's go there now. 
with our first interview. And we were delighted, Kevin and I, to be invited to the headquarters of Unipart, which is a global manufacturing logistics and consulting business based in the Midlands in the UK. And to meet John Nill, who's the executive chairman of Unipart Group. And you'll hear me introduce John right now. Okay, we're delighted uh, for our, our first podcast in this series to meet with John Neal, who's the executive chairman of Unipark Group and has been CEO here since 1987, which is 35 years. And that's when he led the management buyout. But we've been hearing actually how he started here, what was British Leyland Parts before that, which will be very relevant to our story. He, he built it. Unipart from a subsidiary of British Leyland into a global manufacturing, logistics and consulting business. It's hugely respected. It's one of Britain's largest employee-owned companies now. And one of the brands seem to have the most integrity in the, in the UK and around the world. He's a very well-known business leader, but the key to his success has been what he calls the Unipart way, a, a, to a key philosophy and a set of ideas which has been the cornerstone of strategy here since 1987. And Unipart not only now applies it itself, but also consults in it with other organisations. For me, um, this is the key statement in the core document that drives this. It says, it's from John's covering letter, it says, it's important we're regarded as a responsible, ethical and supportive business to earn ret and retain the trust and confidence of our many stakeholders as the kind of objective of the whole process. So it's fascinating. And John's got a lot of stories right from the beginning that illustrate how trust has been at the center of that strategy. John, if I, if I, if we can start and take you back actually to, to when you first started in 1974, a very different world. How did you leverage trust to be successful right from the start? Well, <clears throat> at the time, the parts division was delivering quite a poor service to its dealer network and the relationships were very adversarial um, and they were just getting worse and worse um, the dealers kept complaining they wanted bigger discounts and we weren't going to give it to them so I thought well, we need to have a different way of approaching this and just try and build a partnership so I started by getting the members of the dealer council together and I said right make a list of all the things that you're not happy with and we got a complete list and I said now prioritize them against those which you think are most important, which they did. And I said, now, we'll fix them. But when we fix them, I want you to stop complaining about everything that's going wrong, and I want you to work with me to create more profits for both of us, and we're going to work in a partnership. And to be fair, they were extremely cynical. Um, we went through the list. We fixed everything. And I said to them, now I want you to go around saying Unipart have done a great job. We're going to have to build this relationship. And the other thing is we used to have conferences every year. And what happened is about a month before, people would think, what on earth are we going to say? And I changed all of that because they would make promises and then not deliver them. And I changed that. And we spent a year working out what we were going to do. And when we announced it at our first partnership conference, which we call Partner 74, everything was done and ready to go the next day. So when the dealers saw it, thought, oh, this is very interesting, it'll never happen, I said, no, we can do it tomorrow. It's available tomorrow. The retail shop program, the new packaging, the new branding, the powerful television advertising, the campaigns, they're all launching in the next few weeks. And of course, that helped grow their business and make their businesses more profitable. And because we had partnership conferences every year, 
within three or four years, it became a unique relationship in the world auto industry where people looked at it and said, how have Unipart done this? The dealers love them because we worked together. We built the trust together and together we went out and we went after the competition and kept on winning market share. That then got bred into the DNA of the company. People started to learn that actually if you build the trust and you look out for your customers' requirements, you help them grow and be successful, they'll reciprocate and help us be successful. You gave an example of the, com- the direct commercial benefit of that relationship when it came to the, uh, the market for oil. Can you just tell us what happened as a result and how the relationships you built up transformed your, your uh, success in that area? I mean, that was a lovely story. as one of many, but um, I discovered that one of our competitors was making 50 million pounds a year out of oil, and they didn't ref- to get out of the ground or refine it. They just branded it, and I thought, well, we'll do that. Um, and so we created a Unipar brand of oil. We created some very powerful, and it was a high-quality product. We consulted and talked to the dealers about it. We, we produced some very powerful television advertising, great packaging, innovative marketing, um, and we launched it at our partners' conference. And I said to the dealers, look, this is good for both of us, but I really want you to help me grow market share, and that means that you're going to have to sacrifice the profits that you're making today on take a longer-term view because this is going to be a great product for us. And there's a lot more to it, and we, you know, clearly on a, a podcast we, we, we can't cover all the details. But the bottom line was the parts managers and, the, the, and, in fact, the dealer principals coming and saying, John, you've done a fantastic job in helping us grow our business. We'll help you. We will take the current competitor, which was Castrol, out, and we'll replace it with Unipar. And we'll go after the market share and we'll... You know, going to the IMT, independent motor trade, and we'll really, really aggressively sell this product. And they did. And the evidence is we went from nowhere to number two in the oil market. And we were selling more oil than the big branded companies like Shell and, you know, Texaco and so on. And that was because there was such a strong trusting partnership that they were willing to throw everything that they could behind it because they knew we'd back them. And it turned out to be a really successful product for both of us. Lots of stories like that. If I can pick up on that, John, it's that was a big challenge you were you were laying out. How did you get them to buy into that that vision that uh, what was possible? Because their collective experience of the previous years was that everything we promised them that we would do, we did, and the programs we developed for them, the marketing programs, the new product introductions, the retail shop programs, all sorts of stuff, all worked. They were they made money out of it. Their businesses were more successful, their businesses were more profitable, they were more respected by their customers and more feared by their competitors, which they loved. So when we came along with new ideas and said, come on, you can trust us on this, they did. And that trust was repaid um, to us and to them. Can I ask how you took the experience of that and other similar experiences way back in the 1970s, a very different, very, very adversarial world in the UK generally, and then turn that into the Unipart way when you did the management buyout in 1987? What, what, how, what were the foundations of the Unipart way that, that borrowed from that kind of experience? So, Look, I think the important um, guiding idea was that after the buyout, we had these manufacturing businesses, which were probably some of the worst in the country, certainly BL's worst factories that we inherited and had to take. 
And on the other side, we had the Unipart brand and everything we were doing, which was unambiguously regarded as the best. So Unipart was the benchmark. People used to say that. The other car companies, everyone was striving to reach Unipart standards. And of course, we kept on raising the standard. And now we had these factories that were really not very good. So either we exited them or we had to make them the best. And the idea of making them the best seemed very, very difficult. And I thought, well, we should go and learn from the best in the world. And the best in the world at manufacturing in those days was uh, in Japan, and it was Honda and Toyota. We had great relationships through people we knew with Honda. And we asked them, please teach us. Teach us to be the best in the world. And they were sort of a bit bemused about this because their relationship with the rest of BL was adversarial. And he was being British Leyland for those. Yeah, that, British yeah. Leyland. And here was these guys in Unipart saying, teach us, we want to learn. And they were keen to teach us, and they did. And we transformed our factories from BL's worst um, to Britain's best. I mean, the, 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 we entered, you know, there was a competition, we entered it, we run by management today, or, and they audited it, and, and our factory was regarded as Britain's best factory and Britain's best engineering factory. And, of course, that was all based on the principles of what is now known as lean production, which we learned from Honda and Toyota. And then we had to codify it and brand it so that it would work in a Western context. And we decided we were going to do it forever. And again, that was something, you know, a lot of companies, every time there's a change in the top management, they change direction. You know, they follow the fad de jour. And I said, no, no, this is going to be with us forever. And we will never step back from it. And it still is. So uh, one of the things that strikes me about your business, John, it's very people orientated. I mean, you talk about successful factories, but as you look in the Unipart way, there's so much about the employee as an individual, the individual as an employee. And one of the things that you told us earlier was that you made a commitment that you would try to make employees for life. Can you talk a bit more about that employee promise and how that so, builds trust? Well, exactly. So when we did the buyout from British Leyland, we had to create a completely new business model. And you have to try and communicate these things in, in authentic way based on a lot of understanding and research but in a way that's graspable and retellable by everybody in the company and so I characterized the past as model A which was you know adversarial relationships short-term power-based relationships with the stakeholders so you would have an annual you know fight with the unions about pay with your people you would maximize the transactional value out of the customer for today never mind tomorrow You'd go and fight your suppliers and get the cheapest price, even if it destroyed their business. Um, you know, the community was the government's responsibility and you were just there to give as much money as possible to the shareholders. And that was basically Model A and the way which the country ran. And to, to some extent, the country still runs like that. And then we said, no, we'll give a new model, which we'll call Model B, which actually became the foundation for the Tomorrow's Company study. And Model B, which everybody kind of derided and laughed at us about at the time, was we're going to build shared destiny relationships with all our stakeholders. So we're going to try and keep our customers for life. And in order to do that, we're going to have to keep on training our people so that they can deliver more than our customers would ever imagine. And we'll try and keep them for life. Now, we know, you know people will move on, their family circumstances change. But the strategic intent was to keep people to work with Unipart forever. And then we'll build long-term relationships with our suppliers to create mutual benefit and mutual value. And we'll play a responsible part in our communities because our community schools need to turn out 
young men and women who are ready for work, so why wouldn't we help them? And if we do all of those things, we'll produce fair, enduring, long-term returns for our shareholders. So that was Model B, and that was the model that we then set out to bring to life in our business. And it's worked extremely well for us, and it's now much more widely adapted on a worldwide basis. I mean, Klaus Schwab started with this also 50 years ago when he talked about a stakeholder model of business. I mean, we didn't read that at the time or know about it, but we were also doing that in 1987. Very keen to continually dig down on the commercial benefits of this, this approach. And you talk there about the importance of long-term customer relationships. Uh, can you share, you told us a story just before we recorded about your relationship, for example, with Jaguar and how that, how this behavior has led to great commercial success for both of you, actually, in, in that situation. Do you mind just sharing that again on, in this discussion? Well, l- let me, let me t- pick up the story at the point when um, Nick Shaler became the chairman of Jaguar. So Nick, uh, an ex-Ford man, or a Ford man, Ford owned it then, and previously uh, uh, out of purchasing. So I thought, <laughs> this is not going to go well in our first meeting. And the relationship was very difficult um, because everything went wrong. Unipart got the blame, even though often it was never our fault. The dealer hadn't ordered the part or Jaguar production hadn't supplied to our schedule. But it was just easier to blame Unipart. So this is what he would have been told on day one. You know, Unipart aren't doing a good job. And the natural instinct would have been to take it all over and put it into Ford. So I went and saw him, and I was pretty apprehensive. And I said, Nick, you know, I just want to talk to you about what we really do and, you know, see if we can't build a better relationship. And I kind of feared that he would say, yes, John, but we are going to take it over. And and he said, what do you have in mind? And I said, well, why don't we try and produce an exceptional relationship, an exceptional service for your customers and create a shared vision and work on it together? and bring the teams together. And he said, what's an interesting idea? What do you have in mind? So I told him, and he said, I said, would you like to write a demanding shared vision? And he said, well, you write it. Okay. So I spent a lot of time, and I remember to this day what I said, which was to create levels of personal and material service for Jaguar car owners around the world that meet or exceed those of Mercedes and BMW. And I sent it to him, and he phoned me up. He said, John, I really like this. I said, well, okay, that's good. Uh, he said, uh, so do you want to change it? He said, I just want to add one word. And I said, what's that? He said, can we add Toyota? And I said, Nick, <laughs> you know, these guys are in a different league from the rest of the world car industry. He said, no, I know, John. He said, but we should strive to be the best. And I said, look, I agree. Let's, let's go for it. And we did. We had quarterly shared vision meetings. And by the third meeting, you couldn't tell the difference between who worked for Jaguar and who worked for Unipar. And the service levels were you know, massively improved. And we used to love going to the meetings because we'd come along with new ideas and they would embrace them. And we had a, you know, built a fantastic relationship. And you asked the question about how did that create value? Well, besides giving a better service, we were the first company to introduce something called daily delivery. So 10 years ahead of the rest of the industry, which means dealers could order up to six at night and the part would be there by eight o'clock the next morning. It was working brilliantly in the UK. Dealers loved it. Massive reduction in stock. And Nick said to me at one of our meetings, he said, you know, why don't we do this in France? And his team explained to him why that was very challenging and very difficult for Unipart, and my team were explaining as well. And I said, well, stop. 
Nick, tell me what it is you want. We discussed it and I summarized by saying, well, what you want is the dealer in France to be able to order on our Baggington distribution center and as late as possible in the day, certain to get it the next morning, which means you can close your French operation, take millions out of stock, save a lot of money. He said, yeah. So I said, well, I don't know if we can do it, but I'll come and see you. This is the Monday. I'll come and see you on Friday. So I went and saw him on the Friday and I said, we can do it and we've started. And, you know, we started to build the systems and reconfigure the distribution center for small orders. And I, I know we can do this. Um, my team were very apprehensive, particularly the finance community. You know, you haven't got an order. You know, this, he, could, he could renege on it all. We could end up with a big bill. I said, I, I trust him. I trust this man, you know, and it's going to be good for him. So why would he do anything other than look, look after us? And I said to him, I don't know what it's going to cost, Nick, but I just ask you to trust me. I'll show you the costs, and I want you to you know, promise you'll cover them. You can check on them, and you'll give us a fair margin for doing it. And he said, yes, I will, John. And we did it, and it worked incredibly well. Saved them a lot of money. They gave us a fair price for it. But the, I said they got a big benefit. But what really happened after that was he said, do it all over the world, John. And the parts businesses, which were run by their global NSCs, were all handed over to us. And, you know, again, there was quite a lot of resistance, as you can imagine, in the US and elsewhere. But to this day, we run those businesses and they've just awarded us the biggest contract in their history. How many years ago was that, John, that, that discussion? Well, that discussion would have been with Nick back in about 1990, 93, 94, something so, like that. As we are today, that's 30, so 30 years later, yeah. over 30 years, Unipart has generated returns, growth, revenue, significant amounts of money from that initial trusting relationship. That's the, that's the point. And we both have. We have yes. given them an exemplary service. We've got top of the JD Powers Satisfaction Survey, which is the pinnacle of customer satisfaction in the US. And we've helped them, and they've given us the opportunity to grow with them. So. Most recently, we you know we won the contract for their new two and a half million square foot warehouse, which we are now working on facilitating and delivering for them. We we'll add a thousand people to the payroll this year. So the, 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 it's a fantastic story of, of it's a fantastic story of of how working with others, synergizing, getting value, and you've talked about the strength of your your culture. How does that benefit you when you come up against people who are not perhaps thinking the way that you're thinking, who are perhaps taking a more transactional, traditional, uh, uh, type A approach? Uh, you know, to be very honest, it's harder. And it's harder for the people at the coalface who have to live with it. And we'll persevere for quite a long time. But there will come a time when we just say, look, this is just not working for us. And it's not working. Yeah, maybe working for the, the, that particular customer but it's not working for us and we will then try and migrate somewhere else because you know that's just a very unpleasant way of working but sometimes you live with it you know to be honest there are times when you just say this too will pass that particular individual will move on I mean I can give you an example of that mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> when we first bought um, the parts business out of British, La uh, British Rail called Unipod it was called Rail Park then its availability was 65%. I mean, that's just dire. And the relationships with the customer were absolutely awful. Um, and I'm sure the first group wouldn't mind me mentioning that. They were pretty 
first group pretty dissatisfied with full justification, and they were just determined to move everything away from us. And there's a, a really brilliant engineer and a very smart man called Clive Burrows, and he said to me, John, this has got to be a better way. I've been on your course. Why don't we work like that? So I said, well, let's create a shared vision as to how we'll work together. And he said, okay. So we created a vision. We talked about a perfect journey. And I said, but you need to trust us and you need to share data with us about your business. Now, that took a few meetings. The bottom line is they started to share data explaining, you know, what they were using, when their trains were coming in, the service schedules and so on. And what they would do is they would, they would rob parts of one train, put it on another one so they could get it out on time. Well, when they shared the data with us, we were able to provide those parts to them. And Clive said to me, you know, as a result of this partnership, John, we have saved an entire high-speed train. We've got an entire high-speed train now in service that we wouldn't have had in service before. Now, the value to them massively dwarfs any, you know, price they could have chipped us for to reduce our, our, our margins. And we weren't making that much money, but, you know, they could have gone and got another few hundred thousand pounds if they'd been really miserable about it. But the result for them was fantastic. And we have a great relationship to this day. But when Clive was seconded, and I hope he won't mind me saying this, into the DFT, there was another group took over and the relationship really got very bad again. Um, and it was only when he came back that it you know, got back to where it was. So individuals are really quite critical, unless it's in the DNA of the customer. And sometimes it's not in the DNA of the customer. It's the individual, the, you know, the, the director or, or, or whatever in that customer. And if you can build the relationships that we have with many of our customers, it's always win-win. It's always win-win because there's so much waste you can take out. There's so much innovation you can do together. But it does require trust. And, it, you know, and that takes a bit of time to build. I, can, I know from the conversations we have and, the, and some of the work we've done, that there'll be people who would hear that story and say, ah, oh, that's great, you're able to do that in your industry. In my industry, let's take the construction sector, for example, which we yes. know quite well. The conversations we have over and over is, you just can't have those kind of conversations. Procurement gets in the way. When it comes to a big deal, a major, major piece of infrastructure, this, of course we know we could save them money, we know we could do it more efficiently, we know better solutions than they're asking us to procure for. The way they're asking us to procure it is a disaster, we know that, but we can't get beyond the wall of procurement in order to have that conversation and say, you know this road you want to build here, it's the wrong road, it's the wrong way of doing it. You'd save millions, hundreds of millions if you did it this way, but we just can't do it. So we end up bidding for projects we know are, are disastrous from the beginning. How have you, how do, do you ever come across that? And if so, how do you overcome that, that challenge? So look, I, I mean, um, let's connect it back to the auto industry because I can give you very good examples of that. Um, so pre-Honda, if we would pitch for a component for a new car, the purchasing people would just drive you down to the point where you make a loss. But in most cases, if you didn't win that next model, you were out of business. So you had to win it. And everybody knew the game. Okay, we'll pitch. We'll get it. We know it's going to lose money. But we know they're going to be late. And we're going to know they're going to want variations. So it's all about the balance of power. 
They have the balance of power at the beginning. You have the balance of power at the end. Because when they come along and they say, we want this variation, we want this change, you go, yeah, sure, we can do that. It's going to cost you. Well, we'll move it. Good luck. You're not going to find anybody else in the time scale, pay or else. And that's exactly how the industry worked. That was the Western model. And it was a debilitating, miserable <laughs> business model. And then we learned from the Japanese. When we started doing business with Honda, they would come along and say, you must be able to make this exhaust. You're currently charging us 100. For the next model, you must be able to make it for 90. But they knew you could make it for 90, and you could make it for 90 and make a reasonable margin of profit to train your people and invest in the equipment and grow your business. Because they were highly professional, expert engineers. And if you couldn't make it for 90, they would teach you how to do it. And I remember saying to them, I don't know how to do this. They said, you must send your people to Japan to learn. And we did. And they taught us. And we made the products at that price. So if you look at it, the evidence overwhelming. The Western business model, the price went up every year and the cost went up every year. In the Japanese business model, the cost went down every year and the price followed it down. In the Western business model, you made lost profit, lost profit, lost profit. In the Japanese business model, you made fair returns all the way through. But the customer got higher quality and lower cost. And there's a lot of research on that. So if you want the big picture um, conclusion or evidence of that, when the industry got into trouble, the whole of the U.S. auto industry, which was operating what I'd call Model A, the, transform, you know, the, trans, the, the, the kind of adversarial transactional model. I mean, they varied, but they were at that point, they were just fighting the suppliers. The, the, almost the entire U.S. automotive industry went into Chapter 11, and many of the top 10 suppliers. At the same time, the Japanese industry survived it. And what was the difference? It was the business model. The Japanese one working in partnership. Very demanding. I mean, partnerships are not easy. It doesn't mean, okay, we've got a deal, so now we can sit back and be useless. It means every day you strive to get the quality up and the cost down and work in partnership and eliminate the waste because there's a lot of waste that can be taken out continuously. But if you trust each other, you share the data, you make the opportunities visible, you go after them together and save the money. And that makes us more competitive. It makes our customers more competitive. They grow and succeed, and we grow with them. In what was the Western model, it was just lose-lose for everybody. Now, you know, the world's learning. <laughs> what you've just discussed requires a different sense of leadership because so many organizations, supply chain, I'm buying, so I'm on top you're below. But in what you've described, it's a much more peer-to-peer -peer leadership model across the, across the chain. Or, or am I misreading that? Well, I mean, it, it depends on your thinking, on, on, your, on your way of thinking, right? So if you believe that a confrontational model is going to produce a better result for you, if you believe that prices go up forever, then, you know, for me to win as the buyer, then you as a supplier must lose. Mm. If that's your you know, if that's, that's the thought that's got you, then that's how you're going to behave. And if you're now supported by technology to do reverse auctions and all that sort of stuff, that's how you're going to behave. And, you know, the evidence of where I've seen it work is it's lose-lose. If, on the other hand, you be believe and you know that basically most organizations, only about 5% of what you do adds value, the rest of it is necessary non-value adding or non-value adding, and you have... A partnership approach you can go after the waste together and that 
produces a much better outcome. And we, we developed something years ago, which was our supplier partnership program, back to Model B, which was called 10 to 0, which was the 10 key elements in our relationship with suppliers. We wanted to move from a bad score of 10 to a good score of 0 for mutual advantage, 10 to 0. And to give you an example, this was 1987, so a long time ago. And the first 10 to 0 was zero transaction costs. So we'd say to the supplier, instead of us sending you loads of schedules on paper, we'll send them to you electronically. So we'll make all transactions digital. Now, today it's pretty obvious, but back then, that was a real battle. Invoices electronically, data electronically, you know, cataloging, all the specification, do it all electronically. You know, some companies could do it. But there was no question that was mutually beneficial. We were taking cost out, speed out, putting accuracy in or, or speeding it up. Mm. Beneficial to everybody. We said we want zero defects. Well, you know, defects, just throw, there's just money thrown away. So let's work together to make the processes defect free. We said we'd like to have um, zero stock. Why don't we plan to minimize the amount of stock in the system? and smooth it all out so that you have smooth production. We don't have to have warehouses full of stuff. It comes in just in time. It go out just in time. You become, you have to be reliable. We need to know you're going to deliver on time. And, and there were many other elements. And the suppliers that engaged with it all made their businesses better and more competitive. And therefore, you know, even if we wanted to, we wouldn't find somebody better because we trained them to be really good. But that, that approach is so different even today, forget 20, 30 years ago, even today, from so much procurement, because what you're saying to your suppliers is, is what Marks and Spencers used to do, for example, is to say, if you gear your production and your, your work with us in a certain way, we work together to improve things, then we're locked, at the, we're joined at the hip, and you can be pretty sure, you can be certain, in fact, that as long as we're continuing to maintain standards on, we're going to grow together and we're going to continue to give you our business. There's no question about that. I have to trust you're going to do that. Now, as you know, most procurement still is you've got a three-year contract. We'll review it. We're going to try and crush you on price in three years' time. We'll see what we'll survey the market or five years, whatever the length happens to be. So what you're describing sounds it's great. We believe in it, but it's not not commonplace so how do you deal with that when you're coming up against it, it even in your market it must still exist where you're getting these the either negative auctions you're getting people saying i'm going to review it in five years you know you get this kind of transactional mindset well or put it another way sorry let me ask you a better question what advice would you give to other firms that maybe aren't as big and as powerful as you are now who are faced with that situation in their sector well look the reality is this is very difficult and it's even more difficult in a kind of electronic transactional world where you've got, you know, in some, some, now you've got AI. I mean, there's an absolute watershed in the last month where AI has really come into its own. So you've, you've, you've got people thinking they can use all these clever tools and they become, you know, wedded to them and they become fascinated by them. And, of course, there's lots of people, suppliers, who kind of support them with it. But then they leave. And then you're, <laughs> you're stuck with that supplier or that relationship. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming that working in a trusting partnership works for everybody. But it's hard work. 
You know, it's hard work on both sides. But the prize is that, you know, if we're on the receiving end from the supplier, we're going to have a more competitive service or product to offer our customers, which keeps us competitive. And as long as we're succeeding, our suppliers succeed. It is true that on a lot of government contracts, they go through this very, you know, kind of process Not because they are dead companies. scared of being criticized by, you know, the audit, national audit office or whatever. And you can understand why, you know, but it's not a great business model. And so sometimes you just have to say, well, that's the way it is. And we will just, you know, we'll go and win and we'll win that business because we are going to be better. And, you know, we have this great advantage of the Unipart way. Yeah, I, I, and you said earlier, though, you also have the strength of saying, if this doesn't work for us, we reserve the right to walk away or, or, and say, it's not the way we want to do business. And that's very empowering, I imagine, for your people to know that they've got that, that strength. Yeah, but first you tried really hard. Okay. Have you, know? you walked away from Have you walked away from contracts where they were profitable, but it but the relationship wasn't a partnership; it was a very contract subcontractor relationship. Um, we nearly walked away from one, and then I went and saw the CEO and said, "You know, let's just have a serious conversation here." And you know, I'm not yet to negotiate. I want to talk to you about what we do and explain it. And actually, he was in a completely different league from the guy who was reporting to him. And he, he said, actually, John, I'll sort it out. And uh, he, he fired, <laughs> he made a great decision. He fired his, the individual we were dealing with. But you know what? One of the things that comes across from this, John, is that if you're, not, if you're John Neal and you have your mindset, you, the way you sort a lot of this out is you go and speak at a leadership level with your peer in the in the firm and you have a grown-up conversation based on a philosophy how do you would this happen without john neal doing that having that kind of conversation do, can, does this work in unipart even if john neal is not involved are people lower down also having these conversations and 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 uh, allied to that is again i'm trying to think of lessons for other companies where perhaps the ceo would not get involved in many of these contracts except to perhaps butter up the client what is the lesson for other leaders of organizations in terms of how they approach perhaps their most important customers so look my my job now is to ensure that the values that we have created together remain absolutely at the core of what Unipart does and it remains in the DNA of Unipart and then I pick leaders that absolutely fundamentally believe in the Unipart way, the, the philosophy, the way in which we deal with our people and engage our people and the way in which we engage our customers. So our customers are now, you know, should be realizing and they are realizing they're dealing with Unipart and they're dealing with a company where this DNA goes right to the actionable step, to the deepest level in the business. And our, one, of the most, one, of the, one of the ways that we have won a great deal of business is when I brought my fellow CEOs to Unipart and said, but it's not me you want to listen to. I want to take you down to the shop floor, to the men and women who are working on a contract like yours. And they meet and listen to the people. And the authenticity just shines through. So, you know, what I've tried to do for decades is to, is to instill this into our culture. 
And what I have to ensure is that the first line leadership of the business and the second line and the third line continue to embrace it. Don't stray away from it. And to the, to the extent that we can be successful, it's not going to depend on me always having to go and talk to the customers. And I think we've, you know, I, I hope that I've been moderately successful at doing that over the last few decades. That seems to me to be an amazing point at which to say thank you so much, John, for this conversation. Inspirational. And uh, I, Kevin, I, I take away so much from that conversation, both in terms of particularly the, the focus on a collective vision with the customer uh, as being a foundation stone, the storytelling you just described at the end there, showing people, telling the story of what's actually really happening, and the leadership that you've obviously shown in this that focused on these values which i think is such a valuable lesson for many organizations so thank you so much kevin do you want to add anything uh, well yeah the, the thing i particularly heard was that it's not easy it takes real effort it takes commitment and i think that you made that very very plain that achieving win-win has fantastic out benefits for both parties but they're not just going to fall in your lap you have to work at these things and I think that's an extremely powerful uh, lesson that we can all remember, is the work is worthwhile, but you have to put the work in. You have to put the work in. It's long hours, and you have to keep at it all the time. And the other thing is, you have to be willing to lead. And leadership is lonely, by definition, because you're out in front. But the team will actually back you and follow you even if they're not sure if you've taken them in the right direction for a long time um, and that is one of the challenges of business it's one of the biggest challenges that we will continue to face which is to reinvent our business to participate in the future when the future is not quite as clearly not as, as clear to see as it used to be thank you very much john john thank you so much you're very welcome